You can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Forgot to put on my mic this morning, so Jed is running to get it for me, which is kind of him. Revelation 11. We're looking at, uh, again, protection, persecution, and hope. And to kind of start off, uh, there was once a guy who was uh, fishing on, on a, uh, you know, one of those piers in, um, into the Atlantic Ocean, fishing along there, and he was, he was noticing this guy was fishing alongside of him. And this guy was pretty good. He was bringing in fish regularly. But it was kind of weird because, uh, let me put the mic on first. Just a second. I gotta half dress myself here. There we go. Yep. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Uh, so the it was kind of weird because he, he kept he noticed the guy every time he got uh, a small fish he kept it. You know, like like most of the time when we get a small fish we like keep throw them back in right looking for the big fish. But every every big fish he threw back. And every small fish he kept. He's just watching this over, the, over an hour happen repeatedly. This guy would bring fish in, you know, throw the big ones away, keep the small ones. Finally, he noticed the guy was packing up, and he's like, yeah, he had to ask. He's just too curious. So he's, he, he's like, hey, I, I'm just curious. Uh, why did you keep the small ones and throw the big ones away? And the guy's like, well, I only have an 8-inch pan that I can fry my fish on, so that's the only size I keep, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, right? Uh, and, and sometimes when we approach passages of Scripture that are hard to understand or we're trying to understand who God is, we, again, try to we put God in a box. We try to understand him according to our parameters, what we think we want out of God. In, in Revelation chapter 11, this is it's a passage about a temple and being protected. It's about, uh, it's about two witnesses. And it's one of the more, in a sense, uh, debated passages of Scripture as far as what does it ultimately mean? Like, what can we look forward to? And yet, at the same time, it's, it's a passage that is, even for unbelievers, uh, a message that's saying God always has a witness to himself and his truth. There's something going on here beyond just the details that are important, and yet the details are important, because they help us to understand something of who God is. And even as we kind of, kind of wrestle with what does it exactly mean, it helps us to remind, it reminds us that we approach our understanding of Scripture with humility. We don't have all of the answers. And yet, as we've seen throughout Revelation, God is a God of both Testaments. This is, this is God bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together and, and, and sharing what he's going to do in the end. And ultimately, God is also reminding us what he's like in the dark. When everything is, is falling apart, when things, are, uh, things look hopeless in a lot of ways, yet God is still there. 
As we look at Revelation, just to get a reminder, because we're kind of getting back into it, right? Um, you approach uh, Revelation a couple different ways. In, in Historically, Christians have approached it a couple different ways. One is kind of what they call a preterist view. That is the idea that everything happened really Revelation is written to predict what happened around the destruction of the temple in AD 70, okay? And, uh, of course, there's difficulties with that view because most of church tradition would hold that John wrote Revelation around AD 90 after all of that had taken place. Um, Another kind of approach to Revelation is to say that it's an idealist. It's talking about the themes of, of... right and wrong and God and, and the devil throughout history and how God and, and the, that work throughout history. And of course, there is, that, there is some truth to that. But overall, the, the other approach is just to take overall, as much as you can, take the, the text of the scripture literally, take it what it says and what it means, and try to best in the simplest way possible to understand what that means. Now, that does not mean that in a literal approach, you don't understand pictures and, and imagery and kind of... Uh, Un, non-literal language, you, you incorporate that in, but at the same time, you're trying to understand what it's saying. And again, as we jump into Revelation 11, you know, it's been a while since we were back in the trumpets, right? The, 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 we've, we've been looking at the trumpet judgments and how they're a kind of a partial judgment of the earth to call the earth and it, to, to repentance, to call, call them back to God. And we get, and of course, there's also kind of the, the with the fifth, sixth, and ultimately, seventh trumpet, there are three woes that are happening at the same time. And you see that even in this passage is connected to those trumpet judgments because at the end of this passage in Revelation chapter 11, verse 14 says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So this is connected to everything that's been happening within the trumpet judgments. And so I want to look together at why this is important and not to put our parameters like what do we expect God to do, but to think about who God is as he seeks to reclaim the earth for himself and to judge evil. So let's look at, first of all, the protection of God's people, the protection of God's people. And again, if you have your Bibles, Revelation 11, and you can also see it on the screen here, verse 1 says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the city, holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Of course, sackcloth is a picture of mourning, right? And it's usually used in the, in the Bible for a picture of mourning before God and repentance, and so you have these, these witnesses here who are supposed to witness to the, the need for repentance in the world. But at the same time, you have this picture of a temple, right? He's supposed to measure the temple. And usually measuring the temple in, in Scripture has the idea of figure, not only kind of knowing the size of it, but establishing ownership over it. And so you have... A, Probably this is a reference to Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 40, where the Ezekiel is told to measure the 
full and several chapters go into measuring the temple. But the focus in this passage is not on the temple itself. It's on the difference between the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, and the court outside the temple. And again, the Herodian temple, which had a court to the nations, was already destroyed. So you have just this picture of the fact that, in a sense, it seems like God is saying, look, I've, I've, I'm establishing ownership over, over my people. I know who are mine. I, I, know, I know that I'm going to protect them. I'm going to provide for them. But at the same time, in the midst of that, they're going to experience persecution, right? It says, it's given, leave that out for it's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Some, some think this means that the, that the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and that, uh, that, that then, the, then Jer- Jerusalem itself will be, in a sense, uh, taken over by um, world powers, probably the Antichrist, and, and kind of trampled, as, as it says here, for 42 months, half, three and a half years, 1,260 days. It, it, the, the Bible keeps using these numbers to represent the same group of time over and over again mostly to emphasize that it's a short period of time overall. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't, this, this passage doesn't require that to be there. It's just saying that there's this temple that he's establishing ownership of and yet establishing that, he, that it's going to be trampled, the holy city is going to be trampled. And so you get, get a picture here of protection, but not from persecution, like that, that, that God knows those who are his, he's going to protect them, but he's going to allow persecution of, of those who trust in him, those who look to him, he's going to allow that to happen. And it reminds you of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. It says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It is that God knows those who are his. If you are his child, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have placed your faith in him for your soul, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have eternal life, you are his. He knows who those who are his. And we can trust that. We can have confidence in that. Even when we face difficulties and, and challenges in life, even when it looks like it's, everything is dark on the outside, because it, in a sense here, it's saying that this picture of the holy city who's supposed to be a representative of God's rule on earth is instead trampled. It's left to ruin. It's left to, to shame and degradation. And this has happened before, right? Jerusalem's been exiled in the past. And evidently it will be in the future as well, or at least that picture will happen. There will come a point in time in history when Christians and and a worship of God, a true worship of God, will be maligned, laughed at, and that in some ways happens in every age. And so we have, at the same time as this is going on, he says there's these two witnesses, right, if you, I'll grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will be pro- prophesied for 1,260 days. Well, so let's look at what he says about that and look at the witness against the nation's rebellion. Okay, and this is the reference, the two witnesses is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, where it talks about the two candlesticks and two lampstands. Well, actually, in Zechariah 4, it's two 
uh, two, can- two lampstands and one candlestick, but the, but the imagery is clear that it's talking about the same kind of passage. And in this passage, it's interesting because he kind of talks about what it means, and he talks about it really that, that, the, that God accomplishes his work by the Holy Spirit primarily, that the, the Holy Spirit is the one who works and does the work. And yet there's this emphasis all the way through Zechariah 4, where it basically the, the prophet Zechariah asks God four times, who are these people? Like, what, what does this really symbolize? What does this mean? He asked it four different times in the passage. And here's the last one in verse 13. He said to me, do you not, this is God responding after he's asked again. He said, do you not know who these are? He said, you don't know? You know, and the prophet, no, my Lord. The prophet, I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones, or literally it's sons of the new oil, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Which is like, what is that for an answer? You know what I mean? It's like, it leaves it vague, right? Like, okay, who are these two guys? Oh, well, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside me. Uh, yeah, the, that, that's not an answer in a sense. And, and what you see is God in Zechariah deliberately leaving this vague to the prophets because he's, he, he's, he's saying, you know what, there's something in a sense you don't need to know but here, then, in Revelation 11, we get more detail. We get more understanding. Like, that's vague here. Revelation 11 is more detail. But you're still left with questions. You're left with questions. Notice, let's go to the text here. Revelation 11, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Again, just echoing that language from Revelation or Zechariah 4. And then if, it, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Oops, sorry, I went the wrong way. And, if they had, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottom of the pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So here we have this, this picture, this, this brief description of these two witnesses' ministry, right? So we get more detail, but still it's pretty vague. There's kind of two predominant approaches to these two witnesses. One is to say that these two olive trees or two lampstands is a reference to Israel and the church as witnesses to God's authority and power. And that's possible, okay? But uh, if you notice the next verse, right, if this is supposed to refer to the church, it says that if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, that this is how he is doomed to be killed. And you read that and you're like, well, I don't recall any other place in the New Testament where God tells the church or believers in Jesus Christ that, uh, that they have the power, if anyone threatens them, <laughs> it, to, to kill them with fire from their mouths, right? I don't, I don't read that in Scripture. 
So, so it, it leaves uh, a question, how is that possible? And obviously you can say, well, it's just figurative. It's just saying you can defend yourselves. Possible. But again, the, the details are there for a reason. And it, it seems like it's more likely just because, again, these two men can be killed and their bodies can lay in the streets. This, this is not figurative language. This is specific okay, uh, event-type language. Like, this is going to happen. And this is, so it's, it seems the simplest, which is usually the best, way to take the passage is to say these are two men who God brings in at this point in time to witness to his authority and power, even though no one else, in, the, in a sense, publicly or before in, in power, acknowledges God's authority and power. God brings these two men in. In fact, they're called two prophets later on in the passage, right? And so uh, they... they, they Notice also the language here, right, that describes their ministry. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Those two descriptions right there of their power, in a sense, reminds you of two individuals in the Old Testament. One is Elijah, right? Elijah is, uh, uh, had no, or was it Elisha? I can't remember the, one of those two guys. Uh, I think it was Elijah. Shut, sh- uh, shut up the, the sky so the, the rain wouldn't fall on Israel. And uh, Ahab was pretty upset at that, right? Uh, and then you had, obviously, the power to turn waters from, into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague reminds you of Moses, right? The, this, this kind of reference again to the, these Old Testament figures who have this kind of power and ability. Um, and I'm not saying that this, this could be. Uh, obviously, Jewish tradition is that Moses and Elijah show up when God uh, restores his kingdom, and, but they, uh, which obviously Jesus was even asked about that in, re- in reference to John the Baptist. But what, what I want to connect it to is, if you remember, that the, the trumpet judgments were also very evidently connected. There's like a lot of similarities between that and the plagues in Egypt, right? And so overall, as, as I try to put this together, and this is just my best way of kind of, kind of putting this together, it's, it's, it's probably not a reference to a group of people. It's less symbolic than a group of people. But in the context within the six trumpet judgments, which, again... 14th verse says, connects those two together. These two witnesses are prophesying and witnessing to God during these judgments. In fact, it could be that these two witnesses, in a sense, call down the trumpet judgments. And so there's a connection for the world. There's a witness to the world of the fact that these judgments are not just random, like the the grass is burning and the stars are, you know, these random things are happening. This is not just random, but in fact, these two witnesses are calling out and saying, these things are happening because God wants you to repent, which is, again, the whole point of the trumpet judgments, right? there. A third is destroyed, why? As a call to repentance. And so, in, in the context here, it, it, this could be what is happening, again, but these two witnesses, as it sees, they're given power for a time. They're able to defend themselves for a time against their enemies. But it says the beast that rise from the bottomless pit will make war on them, which we've heard the term the bottomless pit before, again, in reference to the trumpet judgments, but it never refers to a beast that rises from the bottomless pit. 
And so there's more, obviously, even in the visions, there's more that could be written down that isn't. But they have, when they finish their testament, it is when God says, okay, you're done. Again, it looks like the devil wins. And so what you see in, in, in this at the end here is you see God calling out men to repent. You also see nature and, and everything that's happening there kind of falling apart and, and, and God saying, who are you going to trust in? And you also then have the devil and his forces, as we'll see in Revelation 12 and 13, arising to lie, to deceive the nations, to say, don't trust in God, trust in us or trust in yourselves. And yet at the end here, it says that the, the beast that arises from the bodices will make war on them and conquer and kill them. It will look like that God loses. It says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now there's some debate. Does, does this refer to Jerusalem? Obviously, the last phrase there, where the Lord was crucified, would make sense. But the great city, that phrase, the great city, is not in Revelation, is ever, does it ever refer to Jerusalem necessarily? And so it's kind of like, well, how does this work? Um, but I think what's interesting here, again, you have that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, Sodom, right, a reference to those, those people who worshipped themselves, did, did what was good for themselves, were sexually promiscuous and destructive. God judged them for it. Egypt, those, they, had, they had power and they took their power and they enslaved the people of God and enslaved them to their own purposes, right? So what's interesting, I think it's probably a reference to Jerusalem because where their Lord was crucified is there. But what I want you to see is what is God doing here, right? I mean, we can debate the, the exact meaning of the text, but the picture here is astounding. Because where their Lord was crucified is the fact, the fact that the Jews rejected Jesus, right? They crucified him. They did not repent when they were called to repentance. And here again, at the end of the ages, God is leaving a witness to the Jews and to the world saying, hey, repent. Don't just keep going down this path of destruction. Our God, in the midst of us acknowledging that the world should, could, does deserve the judgment of God, God doesn't just be like, okay, I'm just going to wipe it out. You know, he still calls people to repentance. He's still in that business even at the end of saying, hey, there's... Come back to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No matter how long it's gone, after all of this time, God is still interested in people repenting. And I think that is an amazing point. And in fact, I think that's why the author uses this kind of language here. He's trying to draw you to remember the picture here, not just to say, okay, they were in Jerusalem and they got killed. But why are they in Jerusalem? Because Israel rejected God. 
And yet he's still calling them to repentance. He's still, while the nations are trampling their city, he's still saying, trust me. (laughs) This judgment is not a judgment to destroy you. It's a judgment to call you. And then we see that even more true in the next few verses here, in the sign of repentance and a final call to repentance. It says, For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets, there's that, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Which is just amazing. In a sense, there's this spontaneous celebration, holiday, if you will, that arises because these two guys are killed, you know, which goes to show you the power and influence they had on the world stage. This isn't just, you know, two guys, you know, prophesying in Story County or something like that, and nobody's ever heard of them, right? And, and so... there's this spontaneous rejoicing that arises and to leave their bodies on the street is to is to publicly shame them it's to in a sense to say right god is dead right to say this this is not this this is not worth trusting in this is you know this kind of philosophy this kind of religion is is no good and yet but after three and a half days a breath of life from god entered them and they stood up on their feet And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice, that is, they uh, heard a loud voice saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Again, just another point of reference here. If the city is a reference to, in a sense, the, the macro city of the earth, again, 7,000 people is not a big number. Again, if it's a reference to Jerusalem, it makes more sense in the bigger picture. But again, it's, there's, there's, there is. You can take this a figurative way and it, you can put it together. Um, what, what, what you notice here, right, is they're rejoicing but then what happens? These men are resurrected. They, they stand up and they're seen by people on the earth. And then they're res- not only they're resurrected, but they're uh, brought, taken up to heaven. And at the same time, an earthquake happens. And notice here that last phrase, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. To, to, you, you get... You get the challenge here, right? Is they're saying, oh, we've, we've won. We've, we, we, we know what's best. And all of a sudden, their whole worldview, their, everything that they expect, that like death is the end, that there's no hope after death. Everyone dies and that's it. And then once again, even though we know Jesus died and rose again, it's too long ago. <laughs> Let's watch two men in front of the whole world get resurrected and then go into heaven. Again, symbolizing what, again, what everybody knows happened with Jesus. He rose and then 40 days later, he rose into heaven, right? 
And, and this picture, it's not, just, it's not just that it happens, it really is a sign to the world, right? It's this, it's this picture to the world like, okay, one last final. Like, do you see what's really at stake here? You can either die in your sins or you can have eternal life with God. It's, it's that stark before the final judgments that come next. And what you also see, in, by, by putting this together like this, I think the point partially is to draw out, draw out the justice of God. That God is just when he judges sin, and he will because he has the right to, because we rebel against him and do what we want and hurt others of his creation and hurt his creation. We do that. He is just, but he's just in a way that is merciful and clear. You notice the last verse here. Again, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And that's getting into the seventh trumpet then sounds. But notice Romans chapter 2, talking about the justice of God. It says, for all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. Some people say, well, if you don't know what God's rules are, then, then you shouldn't be judged But he's saying that's not what we see, right? And that's not how God's going to work. How do, how do we know that? All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. He says like when they, when they keep what they, what they know to be right, they are a law to themselves. They, they understand that, that we need to follow certain rules in order to be good to one another. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the seeker of men by Christ Jesus. Now in the context of Romans here, Paul is making the point that we all have an internal law that we try to keep. He also makes the point that ultimately we all fail even our own internal law, right? Have, have you ever thought this? Like, like you're looking at maybe someone, a coworker at work, or maybe someone you know, you, you see it on the news or whatever, and you're like, and they do something, and you're like, I would never do that. That's totally wrong. How could they possibly do that, right? You know what? Usually if we're honest with ourselves. We might not do exactly what they did, but we, in our own way, violate our own rules. Our conscience comes to us and says, you said you would never lie, and you just did. You said you would never steal or cheat, and you just did. Our consciences are there before God. Why? Because God is a just God. He wants us to see that he operates with justice. He gives us every chance to repent but still, there are going to be some people who don't repent. They refuse to come before God and say, yeah, I messed up. I need help. And so, so how do we take this? How does this apply to us today? Because this is clearly in the future as well. And I, I think in some ways that the reason why we struggle with this passage is because the church is a type of these two witnesses. There's, there is a correlation here between the church and these two witnesses because we are called to be witnesses ourselves, right? We are, uh, 
the Holy Spirit has given us so that we would be witnesses. So there's a, a pattern here, a kind of a type, if you will, that's, that is involved here, that we, we don't have the powers that these two witnesses have, but we do have the same mission that they have. And so we need to remember something, that ch- some things ourselves. The church has always faced persecution of various kinds. We've always faced that. You say, well, I don't experience a lot today here in America. Well, if you haven't yet, you probably will. If you go someplace else in the world, you probably will. There's, the church has always faced that. Opposition from Satan and from people who hate God, saying, mocking us, deriding us, not necessarily wanting to kill us, but again, just, but just setting aside our message of love, the love of God, and a need to repent and come back to him, mocking that, saying that's not important, it's not helpful. The church has always faced persecution of various kinds. We don't need to catastrophize it. We don't need to make it worse than it is. And yet we need to acknowledge it because God, Jesus clearly says those who will live godly will face persecution, right? Second, we must know that God protects his people even in death. God protects his people even in death. You see that in, this, in, the, in these men's ministry. It says they were given this power up, up until the time when their ministry is finished. And then God let them die, you know? And not that all Christians die by persecution, but, but he's just as a picture here that God, again, protects his people. We, we, if, if we are doing what we believe God wants us to do, we, have, we know that we're in his plan. And at some point, for, for all Christians, until Christ returns, we're going to die. But until that point, when God, we're in his plan, we're protected. We can be bold. We can be, we can be confident. Why? Because we are under the protection of God. And at the same time, hopefully that will, I think the challenge here in some ways is not that we don't know that, it's that we get so caught up in the challenges of today. I don't know, right? What's the news got? It's, it's either, look at the politics that's going on and, and it's always negative about how it's going. And you, and you got, the, oh, look at the problems of the world. You got sickness and divorce and, and disease and death. And, and you got all these problems. And we see these problems. We look at the economy and we say, well, inflation is happening. Where's, where's, our, where's our livelihoods going to come from? We see all of these problems. We see the problems in the here and now. And God, in this passage, is reminding us, no, there's something else to live for. We have heaven we are one day going to be in the temple of God with him forever. And until that day, don't lose sight of that. We can get caught up in all the problems that we're facing right now, and we can lose sight. Even Christians can lose sight and say, oh yeah, I am really headed for heaven. <laughs> there is something to look forward to here. And I was reminded this week... I was uh, noticing some things on parenting, and I was like, man, th- that age, age range from like when the kids are two to, uh, I guess it hasn't ever really ended yet. <laughs> parenting is hard, you know. You, you have to work at it. I was, I was re- watching another thing, and they were analyzing life, and they were saying like from one to 25, 
everything is, is great. You're like, well, usually. I mean, you got, you got issues and they pop up, but you got something to look forward to. And, like, and they're like, from 25 to 45, basically life hits you in the face. You know, like, like it's, it's not what you thought it was. And then they're like, well, after 45, you actually get happier. You know, you're like, yeah, those things, oh, I, can, I can live with what I have. And all the 65, you're like, what in the world are you talking about? No, I'm just kidding. The point is, is we get so caught up in the here and now. We look at our problems. You know, I'm this age. I got these kind of problems. I got this issue. And yes, those are real problems. I'm not denying those. I'm just saying, as a Christian, there's more. You have heaven to look forward to. We sang about it all morning this morning. So where are your eyes at? What are you fixed upon? We must know that God protects people even in death. And therefore, we must extend the call of reconciliation. Just like these men in, in, the, in the last ages when the, the rest of the world is wicked, they're still calling people out to repent. They're saying, hey, come back to God. It reminds me, right, of 2 Corinthians 6, Paul talking, says, working together with him, that is, believers working together with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Until Christ returns, we extend the call. Look, this life is not all there is. Living for yourself will just end in destruction. But there is someone who came, who died for us and rose again, that gives us eternal life when we ask by faith. Right? For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life. We need, and obviously, part of the point here is, is you don't have to manipulate things. Just live your life, seek to, to love people, and as God gives you opportunity, point to the fact that we need to point people to Jesus, right? Call people to him. We must extend that call of reconciliation. And of course, we must know God's glory and our victory is assured. We must know that, right? These two men, even though they died and the world mocked them, God resurrected them. And one day, even if we die, we too will rise again. We will be together with God forever. That is the hope that we have. Why? Not because we're so good, right? Not because we have it all together. Not because we go to church or we give a certain amount of money or we, 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 we don't, we have, I can list all the sins I haven't done. Not for any of those reasons, it's because Jesus came, and he died, and he rose again, and this is his message to us of what we can look forward to, because we live by faith in what he has done for us. Do you know this? Do you know these things? Do you know your victory is assured? Even if you think, well, I'm a terrible parent, I can't, can't, I can't. you know, you're, God's still with you. He's not going to forsake you. You say, well, I'm not making as much money as Joe Blow over here. Uh, I, think, I think laying up treasure in heaven is way more important. <laughs> right? 
So we must know this. We must live with this. We must live in light of this. And this, even though it's, you wrestle with exactly what does it mean and how does it play out, the point of this passage is much more when we get our eyes off of all the problems of the world and all the wickedness of the world and just keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's remember what he's doing in the world, where this is headed, and let's trust him. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of these two witnesses who in the face of persecution and threat of death faithfully did what you had called them to do and ultimately not because they won but because you win we're a picture of the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ Lord help us to be reminded of that ourselves because we all we all have issues we all have problems we all have things we can't solve and yet you are God there is no one like you. You are just, and you're the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.